I don't really watch TV unless it's the cricket or or some kind of sport. But Chrissy and I were just feeling really brain dead. We'd had big days, and so we flicked on the TV, and Australian Idol's back. And we thought, ah, oh, it's a bit nostalgic. We'll watch some Australian Idol. And we were both amazed in a good way and in a bit of a bad way watching some of the auditions. There were some people that just blow your mind away with how great they are and some people that blow your mind away with how did you think this was going to go and who encouraged you to be here? This is not very good. Anyway, uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Amazement, both positive and not-so-positive moments of amazement. So I'm going to read our scripture for today. We're continuing on in Mark, um, as we have been, and we're up to Mark chapter 6. Um, and actually, just before I do, uh, if you're expecting someone with a beard up here, Alex is on leave at the moment, so that's why he's not here this morning, getting some uh, well-earned rest. Um, so that's why he's not here. But Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Here we go. He left there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom he has been given, uh, that has been given to him, and how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. He was going around the villages teaching. And one more bit of audience participation. I promise this is the last one. How many times do you think Jesus was amazed in the Gospels? How many times? It's not many. It's a pretty hard one. It's a pretty obscure question. Twice. Twice Jesus was amazed. Once here and once in Luke chapter 7. Now... When we look at the word amazement, um, what comes to mind is uh, surprise and wonder, not something that you would think Jesus would really feel being divine himself. And the word that's used here, uh, the Greek word is thaumatso, I'm sure I'm getting that wrong, but only twice, only twice in the gospel is it said that Jesus is amazed in this way. Once here, where he's amazed by the unbelief in a negative way for the faith of the people in his hometown. And the other time in Luke chapter 7 is for a good reason. When a Roman centurion asks Jesus via messengers to heal a very highly valued servant of his. Uh, And I think there's a few really helpful parallels uh, between these two passages. So I'm going to read that story out from Luke chapter 7. So we have them both fresh in our minds as we look at what amazed Jesus. So Luke chapter 7 now, the first 10 verses. When he had concluded saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. A centurion servant who was highly valued by him was sick and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come 
and save the life of his servant. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this because because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith, even in Israel. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. So there are some very interesting uh, commonalities and contrasts between these two stories. In common, we have Jesus being amazed in both, and there's talk of healing and miracles. A contrast is uh, the people that he's talking to in this passage. In the Mark passage, it's his family and his neighbor and his neighbors, the people whom he grew up with in the Mark passage. And in Luke, it's outsiders, a Roman centurion and his household. These people were Gentiles, which means really just non-Jewish people. And this is not a big of a deal to us today in a world where uh, we can travel uh, quite easily around our country and even around the globe. Uh, we have an increasingly multicultural society and within this community we have many cultures represented. But back in these days, this was a really big deal, especially for the Jews who were a chosen special people of God. There were the Jews and the Gentiles. There was this delineation. But the most important common thread between these two passages and the thing that amazed Jesus is faith. It's all about faith. He's amazed by the lack of faith that the Jewish people in Mark had, and he's amazed by the great faith that the Roman centurion, a Gentile, did have. I think that must have really shocked the hearers and readers of of these Gospels back in biblical days. Um, Again, these were a chosen people who... Uh, the, the Jews who would have been reading this and they would have noticed this and been really confronted, I think. And on the other hand, Gentiles would have looked at this passage with hope and awe, thinking if this Gentile can have this kind of faith and have this kind of response from Jesus, then maybe I can as well, even though I'm an outsider. Let's go through the Mark passage verse by verse and we'll look at these commonalities and contrasts a little deeper. So number one, Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. Usually uh, we wouldn't make much of a verse like that, but just points out in Mark he's in his hometown and in Luke it says he's in Capernaum. So different locations, good. Uh, And then verse two, when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished. Now, this word is different from the word that is uh further down where it says Jesus is amazed, and depending on the translation you read, uh, it might translate this word astonished as amazed. And when that happens, it usually catches me out because, uh, you know, the Bibles have the subheadings and it usually uh, has a subheading like rejection at Nazareth or a prophet without honor. And I go, okay, I know this story. I know that they're not going to accept Jesus. And then when I read down and it says that they're astonished or amazed at his teachings, I go, hang on a second, don't they not like him here? Um, But this word astonish 
The Greek word for it uh, actually has a different root. It's not so much wonder and surprise. Um, literally, it kind of means to strike, or to strike out with a blow or to drive out physically, to hit someone. And so that word developed to mean, you know, a mental blow that you're struck with. So you're astonished in that way. Uh, and I think that's using the word astonishment there is just a helpful way to help us delineate that these are two different responses. So Jesus is astonished. Uh, sorry, these people were astonished by Jesus. They were struck by his teachings. It wasn't a good response. Where did the, this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are the miracles, uh, and how are these miracles perform, performed by his hands? Immediately they're skeptical of Jesus. How could this Jesus guy possibly have such knowledge and wisdom? Where did he get this? The implication is that he certainly couldn't have discerned these things for himself. It seems to me that Jesus was not necessarily saying controversial things as he taught in the synagogue here, because clearly he was speaking with wisdom and truth, because they recognized that. So it's not that they have a problem with what he's saying so much, but the fact that he's the one that's saying it. And I'm sure we all know what this feels like to have someone actually say something that's really good, but you struggle to hear it because of who it comes from. Uh, you know, I remember feeling this way as a teenager whenever my parents would give me advice and it was good, but I was like, man, just shut up, you're my parents. That still happens sometimes. But I'm sure we all have these people, maybe it's a colleague or someone you know, maybe they're just annoying, maybe they're not good at their job. Usually you kind of disregard what they say, but every now and then they have a, a, something that's actually really helpful and you go, oh, even though I don't really like them, I have to listen to them because that's good. They then go on to question the remarkable miracles he's performing by his hands. Now, whether Jesus was talking about the miracles he had performed as a part of his teaching here, or whether everyone had just heard about it because news travelled around the region, we don't know. It doesn't tell us here. It could be both. But they do know about them, and they're also very sceptical about these. This, to me, looks like a point where they do have a problem with what is actually being said, not just who said it. Surely this can't be true. It's too far-fetched. And there's no way, you know, little Jesus who grew up in this small town could be doing those sorts of things. Comparing this with verses 3 or 4 of Luke chapter 7, uh, we have the centurion who's convinced Jewish elders to go and plead this case on the centurion's behalf. So clearly there are Jews and very important ones at that who do recognize his wisdom and power, they just come from outside his hometown. And these Jews from Capernaum are not skeptical at all. They're pleading earnestly with Jesus to perform a healing miracle. They believe in these remarkable works done by his hands. So why is there such a stark difference in the reactions of those who grew up with him to those who didn't? I think we get a clue to this in verse 3. Verse 3 says, Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary? and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't that who he is? Don't we already know all about Jesus and what he's capable of? We know his trade. We know his family. We saw him grow up. There's nothing more that we can learn about him that we don't already know. 
they're arrogant. There's a lack of humility and a lack of teachableness. They don't have humility. And they can't learn anything new from Jesus, not because there's nothing new to learn, but because they won't allow themselves to, at least not from Jesus. You contrast this to the centurion who, despite having a higher social standing than, men, than the people in Jesus' hometown, uh, he was humble. In verses 6 to 8 of Luke 7, it says, He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers unto me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, come, and he comes, do this, and he does that. The centurion, despite his high social status, understands humility and explains this. He says, I'm under authority with people under me. I know what it means to order people around, but I also know what it means that there are others who are greater than me in this standing, and I don't have authority in those spaces. What he's saying is that he's humbling himself before the authority of Jesus, whom he considers to be above himself. The centurion is humble, teachable, and places his faith in Jesus and his ability to work healing miracles. But the people in Jesus' hometown couldn't see past their own false truths, their own knowledge that put the person of Jesus in a box beneath them, even though they themselves certainly wouldn't have had the authority of the centurion, because they already knew Jesus is just a carpenter. And isn't that one of the perennial problems we as people have, one of the wobbles that we get, as Rose called it? Uh, During the baptism class, we had our first one on Wednesday. Uh, The question came up, well, if the consequence of sin is death, if Adam and Eve had never eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, such a mouthful every time, if Adam and Eve had never eaten that fruit and sin had never entered the world, does that mean that we'd have eternal life? Does that mean we'd live forever now? Uh, I think it's a great question and a really, one fun, uh, a really fun one to think about. Think about the things we do if we could live forever. But that Genesis story just describes the eternal truth of human life, which is so often that we think we know best. We don't have a, a literal tree of the knowledge of good and evil to eat from, but we still desire to have that knowledge, that information that will put us in complete control of our own lives. And isn't that the point of that story in Genesis? That's the human condition. We get it wrong. We sin. We stuff up when we think we know better or we think we can know better than God. God had a very clear rule in that garden. Don't eat the fruit. Trust me. Have faith in me. I will rule your life. And if you let me do that, I will see and you will see that it is good. But that's what we do. We try to wrestle control over ourselves and our own lives and the lives of others too, and that's when we stuff it up. The centurion was humble and handed control over to Jesus. 
he recognized something special in Jesus. But those in his hometown weren't ready to accept, for whatever reason, whether it was jealousy or feeling inadequate, who knows. They weren't able to be humble and teachable and let go of that control and have that trust and that faith in Jesus. They were arrogant. They knew best. And Jesus, in verse 6, was amazed at their lack of faith. Verses 4 to 6. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. He was going around the villages teaching. Now, it doesn't necessarily stay that way, that people from his hometown didn't have faith in Jesus. For instance, we know that Jesus' own brother James becomes a great leader in the church. He goes on to write the book of James. So we can assume that others from Jesus' hometown did follow suit eventually. But the thing that sticks out to me from those couple of verses is that it says he couldn't do miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. In the centurion's case, he had great faith and his servant was healed without Jesus even seeing him or entering the centurion's house. But here it's telling us that a lack of faith actually precluded some miracles from taking place. Now, of course, Jesus is still Jesus and he does heal some. But I find it so interesting that a lack of humility and a lack of trust and faith and receptiveness actually stops Jesus in his earthly form from performing miracles. This reminds me of a couple of stories. One is from Luke chapter 8, where a woman who has been bleeding for many years just touches the edge of Jesus' cloak in a crowd. And Jesus wouldn't have even noticed that if he hadn't felt power leave him. And he calls him back and says, I, I heard, uh, I felt this power leave me. Who was that? And she says, it was me. And, you know, as usual, the crowd kind of starts to sh- chide her and, you know, they don't like that she's done that. But Jesus talks it out and his final comment is, your faith has made you well. She had faith that just touching the edge of his cloak would make her well. And he says that, your faith has made you well. He didn't pray for her or lay hands on her. Just touched the edge of his cloak. The other story is uh, I heard from a pastor I was talking to who was on an overseas missions trip. Um, And similarly, he was in a place where a large crowd gathered around him uh, and his, uh, around him and his team. And these people were desperate for miraculous physical healing. A man came up to this pastor who had cataracts and he asked uh, for healing from those. Now, the pastor thought, I'm not a healer. I don't know this is going to work. But of course, he wasn't going to turn any of these people away. So he laid hands on him and he prayed him. And when he opened his eyes, he saw them healed right in front of him. And he said, it didn't happen because I had faith. It didn't happen because, you know, there was something special about me. The reason that he was healed is because that man who had the cataracts, he had faith that he was going to be healed by God. I don't want to make the statement that healings always happen if you have enough faith, that healing is simply a matter of believing enough 
you know, I've known very faithful people who have not recovered from an illness or experienced healing who are very, very faithful. And I don't really know what to say to that except that sometimes God heals and sometimes he doesn't, and I don't know why. I do know that when we read the Gospels, we can say faith makes a difference. And even during the times people don't always experience physical healing, faith makes a difference. I can't answer that question, but this passage does raise a few very important questions uh, that I think we can answer when we look at the difference in response between Jesus' hometown and this faithful centurion. Do I, like the people in Jesus' hometown, do I have blinkers on that prevent me from seeing a new truth, a new insight, because I already think I know that there is that, that I know everything there is to know? Are there areas in my life where I'm not able to see something profound and good because I prefer things to be the same as they always have been because that's more comfortable? Are there things that offend me because they're different and they're from a different perspective that I really need to pay more attention to? What don't I recognize that is right in front of me? And once I have recognized that there might be something new happening that I should look at, am I humble and teachable? Am I opened to being changed and to going through some discomfort for the sake of something better, for the sake of the truth and a new perspective? And do I have faith? Do I have faith that Jesus can do remarkable things in my life? Do I have faith to relinquish control over my own life to him so that he can guide me? Or like Adam and Eve, which again is really just the story of us all sometimes, am I trying to pick the fruit from the tree and take control of my life for myself? And we all do that. It feels good to be in control. We like having our knowledge and knowing what's what. And, and every now and then we all take a little bite from that fruit. And we talked about that in our baptism study as well. Uh, you know, baptism is a declaration of a commitment to a new life, but we still know that we're going to try and do it ourselves sometimes. But do we have the faith to keep turning away from that and saying to Jesus, you know what's best and I'm going to hand the reins over to you. That's what's asked of us, not to do remarkable things, but to have faith that Jesus can do remarkable things. And maybe, maybe if we can do that well, if we can relinquish that control and we could have faith, maybe we could even have faith that amazes Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your words in Scripture that are here many years later to inspire us. We thank you for the great example of your life walked and lived on this world, for the miracles that you performed and for the way that you have showed us how to live a better life. Lord, I pray that we can be like the centurion, that we can know that you're above us, that we can relinquish control and that we can rest in your authority. 
that we can have faith in you above all else, letting go of the things that we try to control. And Lord, we know and we trust that when we do that, that you make things good, that you make our path straight, and that you can do remarkable things in and through us as we place our faith in you. Amen.